welcome to the Pyramid Podcast, where three lads discuss all things the English football pyramid. On today's episode, we'll take a look at poor midweek Champions League results from Man United and Newcastle. We'll preview the key Premier League games, including Liverpool versus Manchester United, but is that fixture what it once was? Review the key midweek results from the Championship, including Pyramid Pod Cup holder Southampton, who once again drew before looking ahead to the weekend's action. And we'll finish up with Laura, who will preview Yeovil versus Hampton Richmond in a first versus third clash. I'm your host, Alex Murphy. And once again, I'm joined by Tom Gallagher and Tom Lawrence. Laura, come to you first. Uh, Newcastle, four points from their first two group games, ended up finishing bottom of the group on five points. I know it was coined the group of death and there were some big sides in there, but after the start they made, do you think it can be described as a failure, their European campaign? I don't like the word failure. Um, I think definitely a disappointment after sort of the promise that they showed. But I think when you take everything into consideration, it's their first time back in the Champions League for 20-odd years. They gave a really good account of themselves. They were desperately unlucky to lose two points right at the end against PSG. Um, they were ravaged by injuries throughout the last probably month to six weeks. And they weren't disgraced in any of the games. And like you said, it was the group of death. Dortmund, AC Milan and PSG, um, you know, I think that would have been a difficult group for any team, let alone Newcastle. So I think that, you know, on the whole, on reflection, Newcastle fans should be pretty proud. Um, it, obviously, finishing bottom of the group and not going into the Europa League is a little bit of a kick in the teeth, but it may be a blessing in disguise for them because, as we've mentioned, they've got so many injuries at the moment and they do want to make sure that they're in the mix for top four this season and trying to go again in the Champions League. So Definitely, you know, of course, you want to get through to the group stages and they failed in that regard. But describing them as failures for um, what they've showed this year, I think is a little harsh. Definitely disappointing, but maybe a much needed break for them in terms of the density of games they've been playing. Okay, and then, so, Tomo, let's look at it for United then. Probably, well, not probably, definitely an easier looking group on paper than Newcastle's. Again, Manchester United finished bottom of their group, a team that have been established in the Champions League uh, for a number of years, albeit the last decade's not been that successful. Uh, I think we can agree that a, a massive failure for Man United and where they finished in their group. Yeah, one, yeah, 100%. It was... um. The difference between Newcastle United and Manchester United's displays was like night and day. Like Newcastle went out on their shield. The reason why they conceded those last couple of goals, you would say, is basically because they went for it. And when you watch that Manchester United versus Bayern game, it was like men versus boys, Man United. It's so strange to see a performance like that from United because in every single game leading up to the last game, um, in the Champions League, we've got we've gone gung ho. You attack, um, you attack. We defend. They attack. Do you know what I mean? And you score. We score. It's it was um, there's no control to any any of the performances at all. But when we actually need to win the game in order to guarantee the Europa League spot and then potentially get a Champions League spot, we go out with an absolute whimper and especially in the last 30 minutes where, okay, for the first 60 minutes, a little bit of control against the good Bayern team, albeit they definitely played with a handbrake on. Um, you take the last 30 minutes and you think, right, now's the chance to go for it. Put McTominay like, up front like he's been doing for the last 10 games. Like, just go for it. But, but it just never happened and it never felt like it was going to happen. And it was just, it's just so disappointing. And for all the plaudits that Ten Hag and Man United got for finishing third last season. 
it, it almost feels like a waste of time because of how badly we've done in the Champions League this year. Um, you can make all the excuses you want um, about the injuries, the illnesses, um, all all of the rest of it, but it's just not been good enough. And there's so many things that are bad about Manchester United. It's hard to sort of sum it up into sum it up into sort of succinct two minute clips for this podcast. But when you when you just look at the last sort of five years of Manchester United Football Club, you've got you appoint Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, whose only notable managerial reign in England was getting relegated with Cardiff or nearly relegated with Cardiff. Um, And then, okay, he doesn't do a great job and probably the standards started slipping a lot after he he come in. And this time two years ago, we sacked him and we brought in the Locomotive Moscow sporting director. And if that doesn't, that sentence doesn't show you how badly run our football club is, then then let me let me talk about some of the signings we've made over the last five years. Look at the loan signings we've made. And this is Man United Football Club we're talking about, who shouldn't be making any loans at all. But if you make a loan signing, it's because you're basically desperate and your squad planning is piss poor. Odia Nagalo, like now seen in Saudi Arabia, was in China. You've got Wout Weghorst, who was a failure at Burnley, who got relegated. Then you've got this season, Sergio Reguillon, who's a left-back who couldn't get a kick at Tottenham. Um, and so we, we've we signed him. Okay, needs must maybe because our two left-backs were injured. And then you've got Sofian, Sofian Amrabat, who, and the one of the biggest rules that you should say in, in um, transfer recruitment is never sign someone off a good international tournament. And that's exactly what we've done. Um, and it just shows... How poor, like those are just a few examples of just how poorly Manchester United Football Club's run. Anthony, I spoke about him before. Last season, he was available for 50, 60 million at the start of the summer. We thought that was too much. And then we struggled at the start of the season by getting absolutely spanked by Brighton and then Brentford. And we go to Ajax with our, basically with our hands out, begging to get Anthony. And they say, yeah, fine, but pay 80 million or 86 million. And it's like, Look what he's done. One assist and zero goals in his last 25 games. It's a shambles. And I could go on and on and on, um, but I'll probably fill the whole hour of this podcast. But yeah, it's an absolute disaster. And I'm frightened to death as a Man United fan about going to Anfield on Sunday. Frightened. Well, yeah, I think that's probably a, a good time to to move on to that. And Tom, I'll give you a bit of a, a chance to call off there. But I will just say that the team that finished on the pitch for Manchester United against Bayern Munich was Onana, Wambasaka, Johnny Evans, Amrabat at centre-back, at centre uh, Dalot, McTominay, Fernandez, Hoyland, Palestri and Hannibal. And Kobe Minewood came on as well. So you look at that 11 there, what was at stake, what needed to happen. I think there's 13 players currently unavailable for Manchester United. So let's just consider that as well uh, within it. And they're going to be unavailable for Liverpool as well. So um, I completely get what you're saying, Tomo, but there really is issues outside of just the player recruitment with the current uh, injuries that we've got with the players that we do have. Can I just say something? Yeah, please do, Laurie. 
there's a, quite a big narrative, isn't there, that lots of people, like Gary Neville's one of them, lots of Man United or people that have a viewpoint on the Man United situation, quite commonly you hear you can't keep sacking managers. We've proven that hasn't worked four or five times. But like T-Girls just said, it's not the sackings you're getting wrong. It's the appointment in the first place. It's widely regarded that your player recruitment's crap. The manager recruitment's been just as bad. Like you said, after I mean, since Mourinho, you've got Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who's only experienced in English football, like Tigo rightly said, was basically relegating Cardiff before he left early. Then you had Locomotive Moscow Sporting Director, and then you brought in Ten Hag. It's not the sacking every time that you get it wrong, it's the appointment. And that's why it's important to get that appointment right. We can't say that the clubs ran badly and we keep getting bad players, but we can't sack the managers because it's not their fault. It is. They're not good enough across the board. And you're right, that does come from the hierarchy as well. But again, we don't need to go on about the Man United managers too much more. But I think that dispels that argument of, oh, we've tried sacking the managers, it doesn't work. No, try appointing the right one. Yeah, and I think if the media is anything to go by, although it has called a bit today, looks like the um, potential incoming ownership of Sir Jim Ratcliffe, he's already starting to earmark a couple of managers that he would look to succeed uh, Eric Ten Hag, which is obviously not particularly... Uh, good news if you are Ten Hag, because I think new ownership will have their own ideas on how they want the club to be run and who they want running it. Laurie, let's uh, move ahead to the game then against uh, Liverpool versus Man United. So I said in the intro, uh, is that the game that it, it once was? I think what used to be widely regarded as probably the biggest game in the Premier League and the, the most kind of uh, bad blood within a Premier League fixture now seems a bit tame. I think I saw something earlier, Man United haven't scored at Anfield since 2018. Surely just a complete and utter home banker now. Yeah, and it was, I mean, it, last season you weren't in too bad a form, I don't think, when you went to Anfield and you still lost 7-0. Um, that game sticks out in my mind. So we were just having a discussion beforehand. I think a few people would be bringing in or captaining Mohamed Salah in their fantasy football teams this week because he'll he'll score a brace. You can almost guarantee he will. And like you say, I think it probably is one of the biggest bankers of Liverpool season. It's a really good point that you made before we came on, Murph, that it they're getting themselves up for a big game, Liverpool, but the opposition aren't going to fulfil um they the expectation in that regard, are they? So I, I think it's still as big a fixture. It's still you're never gonna have Manny Liverpool three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, not on telly, are you? It's going to have the big build-up and the fans will be up for it. But at the end of the day, unless something ridiculous happens, like it did at Everton and Ganacho scores an overhead kick in the first minute, um, yeah, I, I, I think you're probably both right to be slightly concerned about what's to come on Super Sunday. And Tomo, I know that the, the media are saying that there's no immediate decisions to be made on the manager um, because they're, they're still waiting to get their kind of feet in under the table. But... Given the loss of Bournemouth, given the kind of going out of a whimper in Europe, do you think a big, big loss at Liverpool could almost be Eric Ten Hag's last chance, last straw? No, no, not at all. Basically, nothing will happen until Sir Jim Ratcliffe comes in. We've got an interim CEO at the minute. Um, I don't even think he would have the authority to make any decision um, right now. And, and let's be honest, I'm like if you just take the context of everything we've spoke about, and obviously Murphy, you are right to point out that we do have a lot of injuries, and and he has been um, well. There's 13 players missing, so if you take that in context into consideration, United and obviously Liverpool's good form, United's bad form. You fully expect Liverpool to win. Um, you take 
a couple of other things into consideration, like Manchester United have only scored one goal in the last eight games against Liverpool at Anfield. Um, Alisson, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Virgil van Dijk and Mohamed Salah have all been left at home um, for their Europa League tie tonight. So they've all been rested, the big players. Salah has never scored more goals against anyone, um, any other club in the world other than Man United. He scored 12 against us. So Laura rightly says people are trying to get him in their FPL team. All like all of those sort of odds and um, facts and figures and stats, whatever you want to say, it's all stacked against Man United. So the expectation is they're going to batter us, and I, I I don't think that there'll be any change on the horizon if he does get battered, just simply for that result, and also because like no, nothing can be done until Sir Jim Ratcliffe comes comes in because he's the one who's going to be taking charge of the the sporting sort of side of Man United. So. They just have to what's wait, the timeline on that? that? What's well, the timescale on that then? What are we well, waiting for on Jim? Uh, yeah, I've read for the last six months, I've read all the last three months that, that that's going ahead next week. But I think there's, I've, I've read today that there's quite a lot of um, details to be ironed out about basically because he's a 25% investor, um, usual UEFA rules means that because he's not sort of the uh, majority investor, it, w- it wouldn't um, affect his niece job. Say, for instance, if Nice qualified for the Champions League and Man United qualified for the Champions League. But because they've sort of outright come out and said that he, like Ineos, will be in charge of the sporting side of things, like those details need to be figured out because... There's a conflict. conflict. Yeah, there's a conflict of interest if OG, OGC Nice and Man United get into the Champions League. Um, lots of details and stuff. And obviously the Glazers, they just move so slowly with things like this. So um, it it says, like the son, um, Neil Custer's come out last night and said it was going to happen next week. But I think he's been saying that for the last six weeks. So Neil, Neil Custer says it's happening next Monday every week and eventually he's going to be right. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, just one thing on I was thinking about earlier. I was out... Uh, out walking the dog and I was just thinking about this fixture and how everyone's widely expecting Man United to get battered uh, at Liverpool and Laurie touched on it earlier I mentioned before we came on air that um, it, it just feels like such a home banker because Liverpool as a club will be getting up and the players be getting up for a big game against Man United but the opposition aren't in that mindset and aren't up to that level but you look at teams like Fulham went to Anfield where they 3-2 up and ended up losing 4-3 late doors like we won't even go and have a go, will we? We set up to not lose at teams like Liverpool and then we, we end up losing anyway. I just, I kind of feel it's like there's zero, like last year, Laurie said we were in good form. So maybe it was a little bit of expectation about it. There's literally zero expectation from a single non-Man United fan and probably most Man United fans now that they're going to get anything. So why not just go and have a go and, and see what happens? You know, stranger things have happened in football. Um, I just Murph, don't we'll set up and do it. If you had to guess, what would you say Man United's odds are to win that game? At Anfield with our injuries. Uh five to one. Sevens. Is it? When have Man United been seven to one in a Premier League game ever? Yeah, that's that's mad. But a reflection of where it's at. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head the 13 players, but we all know the widely kind of thought of ones that are missing. Uh, Martinez, Casemiro being two of the main ones, Shaw and Maguire potentially injured. 
Rashford's obviously got illness. Mason Mount out. Yeah, it's just... I, this is the first time as a Man United fan where I've been thinking if I was busy on Sunday afternoon, I wouldn't be that worried about not watching it. Like, this is the first game ever where I'm genuinely thinking. Even last year, I remember sitting through the 7-0. You know, you put it in the WhatsApp, I'm turning this off, but you just don't. You just put yourself through it. This is the first time where I'm like, I, I really would miss it. So what's the score going to be? 4-0 Liverpool. Yeah, my, Sal- my prediction is 5-0. Salah minimum brace. Yeah, yeah. I And the, a sign of how sort of bad I see things going is I've brought in Mo Salah in my fantasy team and I'm going to captain oh, him. Oh, you captain him? It's a, it's a disgrace. I feel sick even saying it. Did you captain him last year when they beat a 7-0 though? If, if I remember I right. There. I can't remember. I, yeah, I think you did, Tomo. I think you were... Uh... Brought up on it in the group chat last time. Right, boys, let's move on from Man United. Um, Lauro, Arsenal versus Brighton. I've written here, sort of game, Arsenal can't lose, which kind of in a title race makes sense. But given how Brighton are and the club that they are, um, I think my thinking behind that one is that if you're going to be a genuine title contender, those games that sometimes can be slip up against strong opposition, you just can't. Do you think that Arsenal will uh, get past Brighton at the weekend? Yeah, because Brighton aren't in great form, are they, at the moment? And Brighton actually won at the Emirates towards the end of last season. It might be like 3-0 or something. Um, Purvis Estabinan having a fantastic game, if I remember rightly. But just the, the lay of the land at the moment, I think the landscape's changed slightly in terms of how much of a threat Brighton are maybe on those away games at the big clubs, just as we are right now. And Arsenal, I think Man City have got a blank next week. Um, but you would, you'd expect them to beat Palace at the weekend. You expect Liverpool to win, so you, you don't really want to give up any ground, certainly going towards Christmas, because we're getting into that sort of turn-in time towards business end of the season soon. So, yeah, look, I, Arsenal will want to win every single game at home. They've beaten Man City at home already. I think they're in decent enough form. I know they lost to Villa, but I, I thought they played quite well in that game, and before that, I think they won four or five on the bounce. Been fantastic in Europe all season as well. So, yeah, look, Brighton, of course, on their day, if they turn up, they'll give anyone a good game. But I do fancy Arsenal to win. And yes, I would say, it, I mean, every game from now is one that you don't really want to slip up in. But you don't want to be, you know, undoing good work like beating a Man City at home by dropping it to Brighton, who aren't at full fettle at the moment. Tom, I agree with that. Think Arsenal going to pick up all three? Yeah, probably. They haven't had the best record like they haven't had the best record against Brighton um, lately. They've only won one of the last five games against them, losing three of those. Um, like Laura said, the three nil last last um, season being the biggest one. But look, Brighton play Marseille tonight. I think if they win that, they go top of their Europa League group, which is a big deal in the Europa League because you avoid playing that um, that playoff tie with the relegated Champions League teams. So they'll put everything into that. Um, look, De Zerbi, I think, even though they've not been coming away with the same sort of results as they were last season, they've had so many injuries and so many problems this season, yet yet they're still showing something about them. And I think he's doing a really good job again. And and when you take in consideration they sold their two best centre mids in McAllister and Caicedo, I think he's doing a great job. And the difference between, I know I'm going to bring this back to Man United, but, and we talked about their injuries and Newcastle have got loads of injuries. Lots of teams got loads of injuries, but 
the clubs are still, or the teams are still putting in good performances and they're putting in a shift, even if they potentially aren't coming away with the same amount of like good results they would if they had a full fettle of um, players. I think Brighton are doing, like, they're still up there. They're still up there. They're getting some results and and they are, if they beat Marseille tonight, they they win that um, Europa League group, which I think Marseille, Ajax and AEK Athens. So that's a pretty difficult Europa League group. Um, so yeah, look, it will be a tough game, but yeah, just because they're playing tonight and it's a, and it's a big game for them. And Arsenal basically fielded eight, they had eight or nine changes, didn't they, against PSV yesterday? Um, or maybe Tuesday. I think, I think it was yesterday, actually. So, yeah, Arsenal will be fresher. And like you say, they're at home. So, yeah, three points for Arsenal. Good stuff. Um, Man City versus Crystal Palace. Lads, I think Crystal Palace not in particularly great form. Um, City at home, normally inevitable. Tomo, just a little bit on Haaland. Am I right in saying that you tweeted something about his dad his, yeah. and his missus and mum or something like that, taking them out of their fantasy team? Yeah, his dad, his dad, his missus and someone else who I think maybe his cousin, they've all taken him out of his fantasy team. Um I don't know whether that's some sort of sick joke by Harlan to to throw everyone off the scent and he's back. But Guardiola is notoriously quite vague about his injuries and um, he might be returning to training tomorrow. He might not be. So, yeah, I've taken him out of my fantasy team. I, I don't expect him to play. And then they go off to um, Saudi Arabia, don't they, for the Club World Cup. So I think they'll probably sort of save him for that if if he is potentially back in time for that. How do we know that his family took him out of their team? Uh, one of the papers reported on it. And and the I, I did read the article, not just the headline. And um, it was a TikTok FPL nerd who basically went on like Alfie's <laughs> um, FPL team and yeah. obviously been taken out. What so effective from before the looting game? Because yeah, you can only see people. Yeah, right. So they knew he was going to be injured last weekend. They might have put him uh, back in now. We don't know anyone's team, do we? Yeah, you can't look ahead. Oh no, I've brought him out. <laughs> Tomo, I've brought him out. Who did well, you put in, Solanke? Salah and Solanke. Yeah, Solanke's got three green fixtures. Yeah, and, um, he's going to get a January move. So I thought I'd have a bit of Solanke. I reckon there'll be a lot of Solankis this weekend. It was either him or Watkins, but I've brought up my, my fantasy's all over the place. I brought Reese James in, he got sent off, he came back in, started a game, got injured. Um, I brought Darwin Nunes in for Watkins. He's back not hitting a barn door. Yeah, not looking good for uh certified glover boy. But anyway, uh right, boys, we move on. Uh, Laurie, Forest versus Tottenham. Do you think if uh, Spurs go and get all three at Forest, like many will predict, that will be Steve Cooper gone? I find it so weird with Steve because I think I rate Steve Cooper really, really highly. Um, it's such a weird one because I think last week when they... Who did they play? They were losing to someone and all the fans were just chanting their support of Steve Cooper as if to say, look, we know that his job's on the line here, but we don't want him to go. And that's because they know a good, you know, particularly fans of Nottingham Forest, they'll know that he is a very, very good football manager. And if he goes, there's going to be so many clubs that are after him straight away, even Premier League sides, I reckon. 
like Crystal Palace. So it's a bit of a precarious position for the Forest owner because he's probably looking at it thinking, well, results have been poor. We spent quite a lot of money. This is the sort of time whereby you'd usually look at the manager's position if we're um, not at the right end of the table or not in the right place that we want to be at the moment. But then he's thinking, well, if a lot of other clubs would take Steve Cooper in a heartbeat, then why would we get rid of him? So I think that's a really tough call. For I mean, if I was the owner, I'd stick with him. I don't mean the problem not Nottingham Forest is Steve Cooper. I think it's the fact that the Premier League is very, very hard and their squad is probably the 16th best in it. And that's you know why what? they're 16th in the table. Do you know what their problem is, Laura? Tewo Awanyi has been injured. And actually, if you look, if you look at the start of the season when he was fit, they were doing yeah. really well. And then he got injured and they struggled. And then I think he come back for one or two games and they, they started turning the corner a little bit. And now he's back injured again for three months and they're struggling. And yeah. so he's a massive reason. And a club like that, you need your best striker, don't you? Yeah. And it's funny, isn't it? When you look at the Premier League, if Newcastle or Tottenham have got their best player injured, everyone's like, yeah, but Son was injured. Or yeah, but, you know, Trippier was injured. But when it's someone like Forrest, no one ever thinks about that. They're like, oh no, Forrest are losing every week. Cooper's going to be gone soon. Well, if his best player's out, that's another reason. But I think I think that's a really tough call for their manager there because I think it's a bit of a between a rock and a hard place. He feels like he has to do something, but probably realise he's actually got a very good manager. So maybe he'll sack him. There's been a couple of times before where Steve Cooper looks like he's been on thin ice, and then there's been like. I mean, one time he was about to get sacked and then the news broke and it wasn't him getting sacked, it was him getting a new contract. And then he was very close again, I think, last year and he sort of pulled some results out. Um, Tottenham, probably not the one, the team you want to face next if you do need a win. But I always say this about managers, if he's going to sack him, if they lose to Spurs, you might as well sack him now because you can't base your whole um, criteria of whether he keeps a job or not and whether he should beat Spurs. That ain't the kind of game that are going to keep him in the Premier League anyway. And they're, at, they're not in the relegation zone or anything like that. They're probably where Forrest should be. So, unless he was expecting European football this season, I would just stick with Steve. Tom, am I right in saying that their captain and vice-captain have been, like, banished from training, though, at Forest? Is that right? Yeah, I know Worrell, their captain, has. I didn't know if McKenna was their vice-captain, but, yeah, both of them have been banished from training, according to reports, um, told to turn up at different times than the first team, training, like, keeping fit so that they can get January moves. Yeah, which... I find a bit of a strange one, but to be honest, knowing sort of the, some of the things that that um, Forest owner sort of does and says, and I don't know if you guys saw um, the Roy Keane interview to this this um, this week. I think on the on the overlap, and he basically said he went in for an interview to become the assistant manager at Forest, um, and they went to talk about the contract. And the owner basically said to Roy Keane that he shouldn't want any money, really that much money, because he's got like enough money as it is. And it's like, yeah, so that the owner obviously um, has a sort of a way about him. So I don't know if that's a Steve Cooper banishing the club captain. I think it might be the owner banishing them and saying sort of to Steve Cooper, look, get rid of those because they're on their way out, which is a shame, really, because obviously if you're the club captain of any football club, you're obviously... A, like a good egg and um and he obviously did really well for them in the championship getting them promoted so yeah it is. those things normally happen where players have quite a bit to go left on their contracts taking up a lot of money and the chairman knows they're not going to be playing in 
just wants them out. Sometimes it's the manager, sometimes it's the chairman, but we listen to Under the Cosh podcast, don't we? And there's so many stories there where either a manager or a club owner or a chairman or whatever does exactly that and just freezes certain players, either one player or a group of players out of the team and makes their life as difficult as possible um, until they until they move. So that's probably something that's gone on there. And although it's not nice to see, I think it goes on quite a lot in football from what I can tell. Yeah, and he's been playing uh, Murillo and Felipe, hasn't he? So I imagine it's probably something like that where they want them both out of the club. They have, they make like 20 signings a summer, don't they, as well? So there's probably just no room in the dressing room for them. Um, but yeah, I'm fully expecting Tottenham to uh, to continue their, uh, their win they picked up at the weekend and beat Forrest there. Tomo, another side who are going away from home, Aston Villa, they go to Brentford. Um, Villa's away form is probably what's going to be the difference here between a genuine title charge, which we've discussed, and uh, maybe looking a bit bit more sort of in the European spaces. And then Brentford, obviously a tricky looking fixture, but a game that they're, they're going to be looking to uh, win as well. Yeah, well, I fancy Brentford to win this um, just because, the, like... Aston Villa are obviously brilliant at home. We all know about them and they seem to get get themselves up for the big games really well and they perform brilliantly in those games. It's the the Bournemouth away, the Nottingham Forest away where they're dropping points at the minute and it, and it does feel like almost it's their, their good form is almost too good to be true and they just need to like get come along come on the wrong side of a result like Brentford and almost be knocked back down to earth a little bit. And I just fancy, for no other reason than that, like it's just one of those fixtures where um, Villa can trip up and they have tripped up before. So, yeah, I fancy Brentford to win there. Brentford, though, Laura, only got three points from 15. They're actually in quite sneakily bad form. Probably goes under the radar a little bit. But uh, in Buemo out injured. Obviously, Tony's still missing. They're not in the... Uh, the best to form themselves and they've slipped into the bottom half now. So uh, Villa will fancy their chances there. Yeah, but we're t- talking about Brentford being in bad form and slipping out of the top half of the Premier League. I mean, the bees would have bitten your hand off for that three or four years ago, wouldn't they? We've already spoken about um, Thomas Frank this season and the, the job he's doing at Brentford and you two had a bit of a vendetta against him, didn't you? And he, he turned that one around. They must have been on a decent run for them to be in poor form now and still in 11th place, albeit there's a few teams there grouped on 19 points. So, difficult one to call that because I, really, I, I would fancy Villa, but they've shown that they can sort of... I just think it's a mindset thing. It's sort of like, oh, we're Aston Villa, we're not going to win the league, so we've got to drop points somewhere. And they end up losing to Forest and drawing to Bournemouth away, which is so annoying. You just think if you can, you know, take those games a bit more seriously or do something a little bit more to make sure you're on the right side of the results there, um, you'd be well in it if you're not away. It's only two points off top now, so you'd be far and away in the title race. So Villa need to... Their away form can't be that bad because you won't be on 35 points after 16 games if your away form's poor. It's just the games that they're losing away. Um, so Brentford is one of those that if they win it, they've got Sheffield United at home the next week. They could be looking at, they could be top of Christmas, couldn't they? So how's that for a carrot to go and beat Brentford? Yeah, the the only caveat I would say on uh, Villa is that they are away in Bosnia um, tonight in the Conference League. I'm sure they're playing a weakened squad, but I do wonder whether some of their first team players like Watkins, McGinn, um, 
Kamara, etc. They have travelled, so I just wonder what that would take out of them, even if they're not taking playing too many minutes. Um, but yeah, interesting little game that Brentford versus Villa. Boys, just do a roundup of the rest of the Premier League uh, games. So Newcastle host Fulham. Fulham obviously scored ten in their last two games. Newcastle out the Champions League now, but do genuinely look exhausted in most of their games, and their uh, injury worries continues. I saw that um, Anthony Gordon potentially injured now as well. Burnley versus Everton in the Sean Dyche derby. Uh, West Ham play Wolves. Chelsea host Sheffield United and Bournemouth uh, host Luton, where I brought, as I said earlier, Dom Solanke into my FPL. So really hoping home to Luton that he can repay my uh, faith there and uh, bag a couple goals. We'll move on to the championship. Uh, Tomo, come to you first. Pyramid Pod Cup holders Southampton. Uh, another draw from them against Coventry. Now on to two draws in a row, which means they will need to win their next game to retain the cup, but probably more importantly for them, another disappointing couple of points dropped for, for Southampton. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And for a long time, it, it looked like um, potentially the uh, the Pyramid Cup could be going to someone else after Hedge, Hadji Wright scored for Coventry, his fourth goal in seven games, so in a bit of form. Um, but they equalised. They still haven't lost in the last three months, Southampton. And if you take into account Leeds as a result, it's one point on, on it's one point um closer to Leeds. So not all bad, but like you always say, Murph, um, the most important thing about a draw is the next result. And if they can win um on the weekend, then it like, all will be forgotten. Yeah, Southampton got Blackburn home. Uh, Coventry, I didn't realise they were in such good form as they are. They've got 10 points from their last five now. Uh, they go away to Leeds at the weekend. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're in really good form. Um, Lauro, Leicester, three, Millwall, two. I looked at it to see if it was like a late goal or anything like that. It looked like they're 3-1 up and in control of the game, but obviously scoreline looks fairly close, but just uh, another win for Leicester. Yeah, I think they were. I think they were one 0 down at half time, though. Um, let me just double check. They yeah, were, they yeah. were one. They were one 0 down at half time, so a little bit of a scare there for them. But again, I mean, not really too much more to add on that. Vestergaard, Dakar, and Ricardo Pereira scored the goals, and they were assisted by Kian and Jewsby Hall and Wilford and Didi. So hard lines, Millwall. You've given that a good go, to be fair. And um, unfortunately, no one could. Uh, do the reverse of stopping the rot on them because they're just marching away, aren't they? It was funny though because obviously Ipswich played Tuesday and won, um, so it played a game more than Leicester, but they were top of the league. And like Leicester have had the best first twenty games of a Championship season ever, and they still want top. That's how crazy this league is this season and those pace setters and how well they're doing. But yeah, another three good three points for Leicester, but we expected that, didn't we? Just just quickly, another example of um. Basically, Leicester's dominance in in this league, albeit dominance about along everyone else apart from Ipswich, is they've got Vardy and Iheanacho out injured at the minute, and they bring in Patson Daka last weekend. He scores, obviously played again um, yesterday, and scores. And it's like there's levels basically, and they're they're basically a Premier League team in waiting, aren't they? And a Premier League squad in waiting. Yeah, yeah, they definitely are. Um. Tommy, you just touched on Ipswich there. I was actually listening to TalkSport um, before their game and Adrian Durham was talking to a couple of other uh, pundits and they were sort of saying that they tip Leeds to go up automatically because they think that Ipswich is just going to run out of steam and basically eventually this run of form is going to continue. Uh, 
but they won again away at Watford. Uh, another massive result for them. Yeah, and we spoke a bit about Watford, haven't we? Um, they've been on a bit of good form lately and uh, they had a bit of a poor start in that game. They went 1-0 down. Um, a youngster, Aspria, capitalised on a mistake from Ipswich. Um, I had a look. He's not the son of... He is Colombian, but he's not the son of uh, Tino Aspria. Um, but then, yeah, George Hurst equalised with a sixth goal of the season and then Ipswich captain Sam Morsey, he took advantage of Watford captain's Wesley Hoyt's mistake um, to get the three points and they just keep rolling on. And when you go to Vicarage Road on a Wednesday night or Tuesday night, wherever it was, and you get the three points and you go ahead of Leicester, like Laura said, who have just made a record-breaking start to the championship season, I don't know why anyone would be questioning Ipswich right now and, and especially those on talk sports. So yeah, another great result for Kieran McKenna. They keep rolling on. The only reason I think people question Ipswich is because they're a newly promoted team. And I, I think we have to say now, it's important to say, I don't think, I can't think of a better managerial job in my memory for your first outing as a football manager than what Kieran McKenna's doing at Ipswich. I, I mean, he where he's come in, He's got a over 100 points now in this calendar year, taking Ipswich up from League One and probably up from the Championship now as well. And it's all very... I mean, it's probably helping them that people have got this mindset, oh, Ipswich are going to fall away. Because every team that plays them is probably like, oh, they're in good form, but they only come up in the in, last season. But they've just got amazing manager. Uh, that George Hurst, how he's not top... He's only got six goals. He scores every single week. But so does Nathan Broadhead and so does Connor Chaplin. So they've got good firepower. They've recruited well. They've got, you know, Le Leif Davis, we've mentioned before, is fantastic. I think Brandon Williams is in good form for them. Um, Sam Morsey's always been a good little player, good midfielder. And they just keep ticking along. And we're quick enough to jump on the bandwagon of managers being crap when teams are in poor form. We just need to keep saying how brilliant. Kieran McKenna has been at Ipswich and their fans just must be on cloud nine because he's turned them into one of the, those sort of sleeping giants that you fear would never see the Premier League again into a team that are probably going to be there in May. Yeah, I, I was speaking to Laura yesterday as well. What really struck me with it is when um, Morsi scored and it was like the 80th minute. So it's quite a late goal. So you're thinking that's probably the decider. It wasn't like absolute like pandemonium with the players. He sort of like runs away and celebrates. And then like the other players sort of jog over to him and sort of like tap him on the head. Like, well done, mate. Like, it's not that they're like, were absolutely stunned or like elated with it. It's almost like they've built this like winning mentality now. Like, hmm. well, of course we were going to win, you know, so yeah. well done. Now back to the, back to the halfway line. We've got 10 minutes to hold on for. So yeah, whatever he's doing there is really working. And, you know, I think this whole thing of like, it always feels a bit like, you know, remember when Leicester won the league in the Prem, everyone was like, you know, Leicester will fall away. And then before you know it, you're in April and you're like, oh, right. Well, the the interesting thing um, for me for the in the next couple of months to look out for will be when um, potentially a Roy Hodgson gets sacked and Crystal Palace come knocking for Kieran McKenna or Steve Cooper gets sacked and Nottingham Forest come knocking because we speak a lot about managerial changes and sometimes you almost as a manager you have to you have to almost take those big jobs when when your um reputation is so sky high because it only takes a bad eight weeks for his reputation to go from right through the roof to 
do you know what I mean? To the floor. And if you look at just say Vincent Company right now, um, although we all do suggest he still is a very good manager, he's struggling this season. In the summer, um, if you believe the reports out there that he got offered the Tottenham job and rejected it. Do you know what I mean? You almost have to... It'll be interesting to see if Kieran McKenna does get offered a Premier League job um, in the new year because not many clubs have made changes in the Premier League and it does, and that's rare really. You do see usually about between eight and ten changes. So you'd think Kieran McKenna will be on the top of their list because, he, like, like Laura said, he's been fantastic over the last two seasons or 18 months. I can see him getting offered... The Forest job, if Cooper does have to go, I think that's exactly the mould of manager that Forest would look at. The flip side of that is Nathan Jones leaving Luton in the playoffs and going to Southampton, and now being a, you know, not a joke because he's done some really good work at Luton, but probably struggling for the caliber of job that he would have done if he had maybe hung on with Luton. Um, and I know it's all risk and reward, and if Kieran McKenna's as good as what we think he is, maybe he'd go to Forest and take them on again but I know I said it sounds a little bit hypocritical because last week I was saying that I think money talks doesn't it with like if Palace or Forest come in the Premier League's a different level but I think he's going to get there with Ipswich so it might not be that easy to prize him away from there but and and that's exactly your point to your point there about the money if you ask Nathan Jones right now if he if he regrets making that decision he's probably signed a four-year deal with Southampton on a million pounds a year and he's probably getting about 200 300 grand a year at Luton so it's yeah. and Kieran McKenna, if I'm if I remember rightly, he wasn't he wasn't a great player. He's been a coach for a long time. Um and if a Premier League comes knocking with millions of pounds worth of contracts and that will change his family's life forever. So mm-hmm. it's hard to say no to that, even though I'm sure he has a really big attachment to Ipswich. Yeah, definitely interested to see. Uh what happens over the kind of festive period where they tend to see some managers changing, especially in the Prem, if Prem teams come calling, whether he thinks I'm going to stick it out here and try and get another promotion on my CV from the Championship to Prem or whether he does jump ship, as you say, Tomo. Uh, Laurie, come to you. So I think when we uh, previewed on Monday, you said that you didn't particularly like the uh, Sunderland fixture. Uh, ended up being 1-0 uh, for Sunderland, uh, Bellingham scoring for them. Just a little bit on that game. Sunderland were really good. They just stifled us. We couldn't, you know, we've I speak so much about our attacking prowess this season and how many chances we create. We hardly created anything. And we had our best side out, really. Uh, Jed Spence actually played left back um, because Sam Byram's injured. But other than that, and he was okay. You'd, you'd take that, wouldn't you? But we just couldn't create any space. It just seemed like it was one of those games that was always going to be probably first team to score will win because there wasn't an awful lot of space to create in. And I, like I said, I think Sunderland did really well closing the spaces in, in their defensive third. And um, of course, Joe Bellingham was on hand to nod in a bit of a scrappy one for their goal. So disappointing, but it was one of them you could just feel coming. And I didn't think that we really deserve, we maybe deserved a point from the game. We certainly didn't deserve to win it. And unfortunately that season's dropped back to 10 and 11 points behind um, Ipswich and Leicester respectively, who just, March on as we've spoke about so yeah disappointing one but I've got no complaints Sunderland were really good and probably deserve to, to pinch it. Just on um, Sunderland we we spoke I think Laura you spoke didn't you about um, how weird his sacking was well 
Um, Mike Dodds has come in into, as an interim and he's beaten West Brom and beaten Leeds and now Sunderland sit in the playoffs. It's who was yeah. to say I know I know obviously that that's um I'm not trying to say it's a good decision to sack Tony Mowbray. I'm saying who was to say that Tony Mowbray wouldn't have done that and then they're in the playoffs. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. it's it's crazy to think that, that that they sacked him when they were so close to the playoffs. I agree. And I, I, like I said last time, I don't think they've sacked him because they think he was doing a particularly poor job. I just don't think he's a trendy football manager at the moment. And it's probably like some clubs, are, you know, if they've got a young forward thinking different kind of manager, maybe like Ipswich have, maybe like your sort of Liam Mannings of the world who've gone in at Bristol City and um, all these kind of trendy ones. Maybe I, I just think that clubs are thinking, right, next time we lose a couple of games, we can probably get away with sacking the manager and then we can look to get one of those on-the-grass coaches that does things a little bit, um, you know, in a new way. But, yeah, I, I, you know, I thought it was a terrible sacking. Terrible sacking. And I think I actually think it's quite a difficult job for whoever goes in there next because I'm not sure Sunderland are going to finish much higher than sixth. Uh, maybe fifth if West Brom fell away, but there's some big teams at the top there, so... You know, I'm not going to say poison chalice, but Sunderland hasn't notoriously or historically been an easy place to go and earn your stripes as a football manager. There's been lots that have fallen by the wayside there. So, yeah, they'll have to be careful. And they're taking their time as well. So it's not like they sat Tony Mowbray with someone lined up ready to come in. Um, it's been a while now already. So, yeah, interested to see. Well, Will Steele was still the favourite, but yeah. he's come out today and said that don't believe everything you read. Um, I think he was in London yesterday. And everyone thought he was meeting the Sunderland chairman. He's come out and said he was meeting his missus because she's from London. <laughs> um, That's what yeah. I'm still for you. I know. And then the, sec the second favourite is, um, I was going to say Ian Beale, <laughs> but it's Michael Beale. Um, oh, yeah. And he obviously didn't do a very good job at Rangers. No. Was highly thought off as Stephen Gerrard's assistant and then got that QPR job and then didn't didn't do himself any favours when he, he rejected the Wolves job, job and said, oh, I'm so loyal, I'm going to stay here forever, all that sort of stuff. And then a week later, two weeks later, took the Rangers job. So, yeah, sort of slim pickings at the minute, it looks like. That Mick, uh, Mick Bill getting the Sunderland job. I mean, that it, if you ask Sunderland managers two weeks ago, would you ever have Mike Bill, who's just been sacked as at Rangers managers, did a dreadful job? And although when he went in at QPR last season, they were top of the league after a few games, they they very quickly started to slip away. And I think Bill went to Rangers after turning down that Wolves job because he thought, oh, we're in trouble here. We haven't got a very good squad and it's actually falling apart a little bit. Um, I think the Sunderland fans would rather have Tony Mowbray, who's, you know, got them into the playoffs for one last season and obviously got them in and around the playoffs so far this season. That would be a ridiculous appointment. And I'm I take it the Stephen Schumacher one's dried up a little bit now, is it? Yeah, I think he's come out and denied it. He's drifted to 25-1. to 1. John Eustace down there, 25-1. to 1. Then you've got Graham Potter and Frank Lampard and people like that. So the third favourite is that Mike Dodd. So it might be if he they've got Bristol City away, if they win three on a bounce, they might think that they can stick with that. But then why is Mowbray that? I'd never understand that. Never ever understand that. If you were bottom, if you were struggling at the bottom, sack the manager, and then your assistant comes in and takes you forward into the top half or whatever, then maybe. But when you're doing well, you just if you keep his oldest, was he as the assistant manager, Dodds? Keep someone that was obviously already at the club, then it just seems even more senseless to sack him. It's really, really weird. I just think that's such a bizarre one. But there you go.
the championship teams don't seem to be doing incredibly well with their seconds this year, do they? Birmingham, another example. Yeah, no, I, I'm a bit shocked by that, to be honest. And looking through that list, if Will Steele's like the even money favourite and then you you got Paul Heckenbottom then in fourth favourite, I think Sunderland are maybe regretting that already. Uh, but yeah, Bristol City away for um, Sunderland. Loro Coventry home, uh, which we touched on earlier for Leeds. Coventry obviously in good form, but Leeds be looking to bounce back. Uh, we didn't touch on the Leicester and Ipswich fixtures. Leicester go away to Birmingham. Uh, Rooney, I think, picked up a result in midweek. Bakuna scoring for them. So um, Leicester should be favourites for that, though, and will be. And then Ipswich have got a massive game home to Norwich uh, at half 12. So massive derby game there before their Leicester and Leeds game. So be interested to see where McKenna is the other side of the festive period um, and just the other team in the playoffs fifth place West Brom they went and won 2-0 away at Rotherham and they host Stoke at the weekend so yeah we'll uh, obviously reflect on the results on uh, next week's pod there in the championship move on to League One obviously we recorded on Monday last week just before Monday night football Tomo um, first versus second Portsmouth Bolton uh, Portsmouth won the game 2-0, but question for you, did you see Dion Charles's miss? Yes, because you put it in the group. Yeah, absolute stinker, wasn't it? But um, big result for Portsmouth. I did say I did say I fancied them purely based on the fact they were at home and um, they got the job done and they scored just before half-time, I want to say, and then um, held out and scored in the 88th minute to seal the win. So, got a little bit of a gap there, six points ahead, like you say, but but Bolton have got a game in hand. But yeah, massive result at the top of the table. Yeah, that was a big result for Portsmouth. I actually fancied uh, Bolton there, I think, just based on the, the form that they were in. But big result for Portsmouth. Six points clear at the top now, albeit a game in hand for Bolton. Uh, but yeah, just opens up a bit of a gap for them. Uh, their fixtures this weekend. So uh, Bolton hosts Bristol Rovers. Portsmouth go away to Shrewsbury. Uh, third place, Stevenage. They've got 13 points from five now. We all spoke about Steve Evans on Monday. They host Exeter. Uh, fourth place, uh, Peterborough go to Fleetwood, who are struggling. Oxford in fifth place. Lauro, going to come back to this because we've, we've, sounds like we've got a bit of a vendetta against this Des Buckingham. But now they drew midweek with Reading as well, Oxford, who obviously been struggling. They've now got no League One win in a month, Oxford, and are slowly looking like they're dropping out of the playoffs. So worrying for them. Yeah, uh, just what we've said already. Um, like you say, no vendetta against Des Buckingham. Wish him all the best. Hope it picks up. They have had some difficult fixtures within that, and there's been some cup games for them in, in the mix as well. But like you say, they've just drawn to bottom of the or second bottom of the league. So um, needs to get going at some point for them. But the good thing about this period of the season, unless you've got a load of injuries, is the games come thick and fast. So if you lose one, you can correct it quickly. And if you win one, maybe you can pick up some momentum momentum and uh, fire forwards again. So, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be tough for Oxford, though, because you look at the people in the mix there. Bolton and um, Portsmouth are obviously the standouts. Stevenage, I don't think, have lost a game in the last three years. And then Peterborough and Derby. You know, Derby have had their poor run this season and our mate Warney's looking good and Peterborough, um, you know, Darren Ferguson knows how to get them out of that league, doesn't he? And they score lots of goals, have done for the last 10, 15 years. So, um yeah, I mean, I know there was probably slightly the surprise package at the start of the season, Oxford. But like I keep saying, that's why it was a really difficult job to take. You're taking a, you're taking over an overachieving club, and you know, replacing a manager that the fans didn't want to leave. So really, really difficult. Coupled in with your first job in England, 
yeah, hard yards for old Des. I did see I did see some of the players come out and they were they sounded quite bitter about the way Liam Manning left. And I wonder if there was a sort of a collective sense of like the balloon getting popped when he left. Yeah. And so it might not all be Des Buckingham's fault, if you know what I mean. Um he's sort of come in and they're all a little bit they're a little bit um down, I guess. Simply because they didn't expect Manning to leave in the way he did. Problem is, though, it's part of the job description, isn't it? As the manager, talk about it at Man United. Like you've got to inspire the players. You've got to come in and say, right, I know this has happened, but this is what we're going to do now. And there's probably players, well, there would have been that have obviously signed in the summer, like Mark Harris from Cardiff and Ruben Rodriguez from Notts County, that have probably bought into what Liam Manning sold them. Um, but if you're going to take the job, Des Buckingham, that's part of it. You can't just come in and think, right, what we're second, so just keep doing that, lads. You've got to gain the respect of the dressing room, make sure that everyone's singing off your hymn sheet and crack on. Um, but look, he's only had, what, three or four league games. Let's give him a bit more time, but difficult start. Just uh, going back to the Kieran uh, McKenna, if he was to get a Prem job, that Liam Manning stock really high at Oxford jumped to the Bristol City job. I've seen some Bristol City fans on Twitter saying that the football he's implementing they're playing is absolutely awful. And they're mm. wanting to change already and saying they can't believe that Pearson went for for this. So just doesn't always work out, does it? Sometimes styles fit clubs and stuff like that. And um it's only yeah. four games. Yeah, yeah I know. That that sacking was another one though. That when they sacked Pearson, they were only three points off the playoffs or something like that at the time. And that's another example, exactly the same as Sunderland, of Nigel Pearson's been around the block. He's an old school manager. He's not going to change his ways. As soon as you lose a couple of games, brilliant. Let's get rid of him and let's bring in someone like Wyatt, um, Liam Manning, who everyone knows for being one of these technical type Russell Martin coaches. But it's not always the the right way. But like like Tomo just said, you can't. We're being fickle, aren't we? We're judging it on a moment in time after four games. Let's judge him after twelve fifteen. Yeah, just just the the feedback that I was seeing on uh, X from Bristol City fans and one thing the modern social media doesn't allow footy managers now is time really do they people want instant results and gratification so uh, yeah interesting to see what happens with Oxford I mean they do host Burton who are one point from 15 so um, yeah I think that 15 available points that is not 15 games uh, are they appointed the manager yet Burton? I've not seen it I saw Pesky Salado linked with it and Hasselbank but (laughs) Uh, and then uh, Derby touched on it they've got 15 points from a possible 15 uh, absolutely flying now I think we're all tipping them to uh, start moving up through his playoffs towards the automatics they host Wickham who have also uh, only got one point from their last five games from available 15 points so should hopefully be a home banker there for Derby move on to League 2 uh, Laurie Stockport versus Sutton first versus 24th I know that Stockport aren't in the greatest of form, but someone on Twitter that it was absolute must win for Stockport. Did we? Did we say? Yeah, I, I couldn't. Ha- I had to reply. Um, gentleman that runs a a pretty decently followed Twitter account of lower league football is a Notts County fan, so obviously all eyes on League Two for him. He he said that Stockport are in a really tricky spell at the moment with their form. And is Sutton at home at the weekend a must win already for them? And I just thought to myself, it's a must win for Sutton because they're 24th and they're going to need to start getting some points if they want to stay in the league. But if 
you're describing a game for Stockport as must win. Bearing in mind Stockport are six points clear at the top of the league with the best goal difference by a mile in the league, then what is every other game for every other team? Life or death? I just, honestly, I cannot get any... That is just, to quote one of T-Gale's phrases, that is a microcosm of modern football fans that you're only as good as your last two or three games, really, and then you're in trouble. And it must be so frustrating for like the management and the players and stuff at Stockport to be thinking to themselves, we've got people on Twitter now that are watching League Two and describing our next game as a must-win, and we're six points clear at the top. It must be like, how do you ever get any gratification in this game? Well, do you know, so what's, do you have... know what's crazy about that as well is they went on their massive winning streak, didn't they? What was it, 13, 14 in a row? And if you if you sort of split those games up with a draw and a loss and a draw and and out of the last 16, they've won 13, drawn two and lost one. No one, no one would even bother saying that this is a must win, but the fact that they've left that little bit of bad form for the last three games where they've drawn two and lost one, it's like the end of the world when actually let's take into consideration the fact they've just won 13 league games in a row in a row. Yeah, that's it. And I'm I'm 100% with you. And I think I'm probably a little bit more heightened in my emotion towards it because it's very similar to Yeovil. And there's lots of sort of of like your negative fans coming out the woodwork all of a sudden and saying what we should and shouldn't do and what Cooper's not doing right. And you're right. Yeovil's form is one loss in the last 16 league games, including 14 wins. Do you know what I mean? Um, But because the bad run of form has come lately... And it's fresh in everyone's mind. That's all anyone cares about. And like I said, it, you're like you're as good as your last game or your last couple of games. And it's so frustrating. I hate that. Look at the wider picture. Would you rather be any other team in League Two rather than Stockport? Maybe Wrexham, but certainly you wouldn't rather be any other team in terms of the points and the goals um, you've acquired so far at this stage of the season. So don't talk to me about must wins. A must win is for Sutton, who are on 14 points, six points adrift at the bottom. That's a must win. Every game's a must win for them now. Seven points from the last five for Sutton, though. Unbeaten in five, four draws and a victory. So a little bit of form there for them. And as you say, Stockport, not in the best form. So at 13-2 to two on Skybet, are Sutton worth a, a little inclusion in an ACA? I doubt it. But if Stockport lose the game, if Stockport lose this must-win game for them, the, the absolute worst-case scenario is they're three points clear at the top of League Two. Yeah. Yeah, not too perilous, is it? No. The team that will be looking to close that gap if they do slip up, uh, Wrexham, they are in second place. They host a team right down there as well, Colchester in uh, 22nd place. Uh, Third place, Barrow, they go to Swindon, who are in ninth. Swindon got absolutely battered uh, by Wimbledon uh, in their last game. Fourth place, Mansfield, go to Crawley. And fifth place, Crewe. Uh, they host Accrington. So some winnable fixtures for the uh, sides at the top of League Two there. So sure that just a quick just a quick one on Swindon. I'm just having a look at their goal difference. They've they're the highest goal scorers in um in League Two this year with um 43 goals, but they've also conceded 40, which only one other club in the whole of the league has has conceded more, which is Colchester. So unbelievable stat really when they're I think what ninth one point off the playoffs yeah yeah and even in the fa cup they decided to go and have a seven four ding dong with all yes, that they're, they're scoring two a game and conceding two a game it must be great to watch them 
Yeah, just a quick one on Swindon as well. Um, let me get my wording right. But the League 2 relegation um, odds were frozen today because Swindon's chairman, Clem Mofuni, has been charged by the EFL with breaches of EFL regulations. And it sounds very much like a, an Everton-type situation, I think. Um, so there could be a points deduction coming there for Swindon and right. mixing things up in that regard. So um, yeah, watch this space on that one. I don't, I don't want to, you know, I'm just reading stuff on Twitter. Disclaimer: that might not be true, but it looks like that the the official Swindon account have tweeted something to, you know, along those lines. So yeah, could be a bit of a sticky one for Swindon, but which is a shame because they've been good this season. Yeah, uh, I hadn't seen that. Imagine having that information just before it got broken having a look at the odds for relegation because they're 15 points clear of it at the minute. That would have been tasty and probably also uh, illegal. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, to be fair, I doubt they'll go down unless they get a ridiculous points deduction because even if they got 10 points taken off them, you know, they'd still be far above um, Sutton and is it Forest Green in there as well at the minute. So hopefully they won't get relegated with another big football club for that league. But yeah, just something to keep an eye on. Tomo, did I see on X some sides got are getting like a 115 point deduction or something like that. Yes. Um, there, there was only a six point deduction this season and then a 135 point deduction, um, suspended deduction. If they've, um, breached any more of the, the rule, the rules and regulations, they, they were found guilty of 18 different charges. Um, so as you can imagine, obviously Man City are charged with 116, is it? Um, so yeah, but you can already see that playing out for City like oh it's a six point deduction and a further 180 point deduction but it's suspended so don't do it again yeah well I know yeah so anyway uh, Laurie let's move on to Yeovil and we will come on to the um, first versus third game of Hampton Richmond but just a little bit first on uh, Josh Staunton who's left the club who was obviously club captain and had almost well probably did become a bit of a club legend over the last couple of years yeah, definitely a, a modern legend um, for the football club. I think particularly because of what you'd call the wrong reasons in terms of where we've been in the last couple of years. He was someone that stood up and was a, a proper leader and a bit of a beacon of light for the Glovers throughout last season where we had that horrible period where we didn't know what was happening with the ownership and we were losing games every week. We got relegated. Um, he was one that stood up, came out and spoke to the media you know, stuck his head above the parapet and made sure that he was a face of the club and made sure that the fans had someone to hear from in amongst a time that was very, very confusing for everyone and um, disheartening in terms of what was happening on the pitch and off the pitch. And then during the summer when the new ownership came in, he helped build that connect with the fans. Um, He showed the effort that he would put in by spending his summer painting the football ground and helping take down the old dugouts and everything behind the scenes he's been superb with. Um, And then this season on the pitch, unfortunately, it just hasn't worked for him. He's got a bit of a dodgy knee, I think, that has hampered his ability to play on the three and 4G pitches in the National League South, of which there are something like seven or eight. So he hasn't been able to play in a lot of the away games anyway. Um, And you couple that with the fact that we've got a really, really good, solid 
partnership at the back between Morgan Williams and Jake Winnell, he's found his playing time limited. So I don't know exactly what's gone on behind the scenes that's led to a termination of the contract, which you'd say is very rare to see for your club captain um, in December for a team that's top of the league. But what I will say is, obviously, wish Josh Staunton all the best um, in whatever's next for him, because he's been fantastic for the Oval Town Football Club. And uh, hopefully we can see him back on the pitch for another team in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, nice nice words, Laura. Um, we've got a game against Hampton and Richmond at the weekend, first versus third. Just uh, a bit on that game, but also just to loop back in with that Staunton bit, if Staunton's left, seemed a popular figure in the dressing room, um, on the HP Source videos they do, which go into training, he looks like a bit of a character and always involved. Do you think a player of that kind of magnitude leaving could be cause any issues sort of with the squad that, that he's left behind? Well, he wasn't club captain for no reason, was he? You would have thought it would leave a little bit of a void. Um, but at the same time, he hasn't been the captain on the pitch for much of the season because we've been so good on it. And ironically, it was actually the Hampton and, Rich and, Hampton and Richmond away game this season. We're already on the reverse fixture now where Morgan Williams and Jake Winnell played together without Staunton for the first time. And it worked brilliantly. We played brilliant football. That was one of the first of those 14 wins in a row that we had. Won that game 2-1 and Staunton's never been able to get back into the into the team since then, um, other than sort of cup games and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I think it maybe leave a bit of a void. I think we're a little bit light in terms of the centre-back positions now because obviously Josh Staunton's gone and uh, another centre-back, Jamie Sendles-White's been injured for the majority of the season. So I'm, I'm assuming that will free up some playing budget for us to go out and bring in a backup defender. No one's going to be better than Jake Winnell and, and Morgan Williams at the moment. Um, and we've also lost Sonny Cox this week, or today, I think. He's gone back to Exeter, been recalled to his League One club. And it was a bit of a coup at the time. Um, no one could quite believe that he was coming to the National League South. And although he's blown a little bit hot and cold, I, I thought he was more than useful. Scored a couple of goals. He um, was very quick. He was a problem for defences. And all of a sudden, we've lost two players that I think we need to replace, um, particularly with Jordan Stevens being out as well. We are, we've gone from being very sort of um, heavily loaded with quite gifted footballers to come in if we have an injury to I'm worried if we get someone that picks up a suspension or um, an injury this weekend now. So, yeah, hopefully we can see a couple come through the door in the next month at Yeovil. But first v third, it's a chance for us to pull away from another team this weekend. Um, we're seven points clear at the top, Hampton the third, so we could probably go to at least, well, obviously we could go to at least 10 points ahead of them. And I think Maidstone, who are second, have got a tricky fixture. I think they're away at Worthing, who are one of the better footballing teams in this league as well. So, yeah, it's our first time back at Hewish Park since the Farnborough game that you both came to four weeks ago. So we've had a long, you know, that's another thing. This sort of tricky run of form that you will have had has coincided with a lot of away games, um, a lot of travelling. And, uh, you know, last week we went to Wrexham, Bath and Dartford all within six days. So that can't be easy. So it'd be nice to be back at Hewish Park. We haven't lost that at all this season. We've only drawn twice, won the rest. And hopefully we can continue in that vein of form. So looking forward to it and hopefully we can extend our lead at the summit. Good stuff. Cheers. All right. Good luck to the Glovers. Boys, we'll finish up, uh, as you always do, with the treble. Tomo, I'm not going to come to you first this week. Uh because of your meltdown last time out. Uh, but I'll go first this time. I'm actually going to go for a bit of an outsider away from home. I'm going to go for QPR away at Sheffield Wednesday. They're just over two to one. 
QPR have picked up 10 points from their last four games. They are in 22nd, only one place above Sheffield Wednesday. But form seems to have turned around in line with their uh, new manager coming in. I think two to one or over two to one is far too big there for Sheffield Wednesday, who are obviously right down there as well. So uh, I'm going to boost the odds up straight away and go with QPR. I'm going to go away as well. And I'm going to back our man Unai Emery to go and build on the performances at home against City and Arsenal and beat Brentford, who you reminded us all are in a, a little bit of a poor vein of form at the moment. So I'm going to go for Villa to rubber stamp that, those six points that they've picked up over the uh, the two big boys in the last couple of weeks and, uh, yeah, continue their title charge. Just uh, over evens, I think. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm going to go for Sunderland away at Bristol City. Um Obviously, Mike Dodds has come in as into a manager, won two out of two really tough games. And we spoke a little bit about Liam Manning struggling at Bristol City. So I think um, Mike Dodds will, will make it three out of three and Sunderland will win. And that's six to five. Um, so it brings the treble to 13 to one. Yeah. And when you're in a run of form uh, with trebles where you've not won in 20 and you're getting accusations of being in the bookies' pocket, what better than to do than to pick three away teams above Evans and <laughs> shove it in a treble. But yeah, QPR away at Sheffield Wednesday, Aston Villa on Sunday away at Brentford and Sunderland away at Bristol City. As Tomo said, just over 13 to 1. So £10 stake uh, returns 146. Our banker trebles haven't worked. So let's go for a little bit of an outsider and hopefully get some money in the pockets. Boys, uh, that's all we've got time for. Uh, we'll be back on Monday where we will uh, review all the weekend action, look ahead to any midweek action. But thanks for your time. Pleasure as always. One, two, three.